programming at their institution, provided those important opportunities for their institution and, and their families. Um, we're going to be starting with Heather Nielsen, who is the head of community and family programming at the Denver Art Museum. Then Carolyn Nenart will um, talk about um, her institution. She is the program and education director at Wen Wenham Museum. And then last, we'll hear from Rebecca Crawford, who is um, the USS Constitution's Museum Learning Outreach Coordinator. There will be time for Q&A following the three presenters, and then we will shift to small group discussion to talk about what are some of the elements of successful family programming. What does successful family programming look like? And then lastly, we will cover some resources that are available online um, for further explanation at home. There is the agenda, for, if those can see it, on the flip chart there the, with some target times that we're going to be um, trying to hit. So if you have to take a biological break, you can do so strategically looking at that agenda. Um, and now I'm going to turn it over to our first speaker, Heather. Switched out. Okay. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name's Heather Nielsen, and I feel like a little bit like a fish out of water being from an art museum um, in what I think uh, is a gathering of mostly historians and history museums, but I think kind of in, in light of what even Susan Stanberg talked a lot about this morning, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the successes that we all face are very similar. So um, I'm here today to talk to you about what we've been doing at the Denver Art Museum as an art museum. And partly I think we're an interesting case in that art museums aren't traditionally thought of as family-friendly institutions. So what has really shaped our thinking and what really has um, been almost the philosophy of creating family programs for us. Um, who are we? We're located in Denver, Colorado. Are there Denver museums here? Couple, one, okay, there we go, <laughs> then you know us. Um, we're one of the largest art museums between Kansas and the West Coast. We have about two million um, people in Denver and it's about 40% families. And actually, I think that's one of the things that's always really important for us to do when we're starting to develop family programs is actually look at our demographics. Um, as an art museum, actually during family peak times, we're about 20% families. Um, that might be interesting for you all to think about in terms of how many you know, families you get to your institution. I don't know if that seems high or low to you as a number. Um, as far as art museums go, that's a relatively high number. I, however, think compared to children's museums and natural history museums, it's a pretty low number. We did do an expansion about, um, what is 2006 or 2010, four years ago. That's a picture of our two buildings, which means we've doubled in size and doubled our space. The story that I want to kind of tell about what, for me, means designing for success and developing successful family programs is number one, make it intuitive. And I'm going to keep talking a lot about that. Um, and when I say that, I mean 
what's the most intuitive thing that you can develop so that parents and kids know exactly what they're supposed to do and almost make yourself obsolete as an educator. Um, this is the, the next bullet point, create things you can maintain, I think is really important in this time of, you know, looking at our economics, that one of the things we try to do is create things that might cost a lot of money up front, but cost very little money to maintain over years. Um, remember that not all families are the same, and we all know that. Um, and finally, it takes a lot of hard work and a long time to develop family <laughs> programs that stick. Um, this real briefly, this slide covers why we decided to focus on families and this is probably not so different from many of you, but we wanted future adult visitors, right? And we know that one of the most lasting uh, memories of museums is when people have them in family groups. We wanted to demonstrate service to our young people and really kind of become an institution that when people are out in the community they say, oh, you know, the Denver Art Museum actually really cares about kids. That's important to us and we wanted more diverse visitors. Um, and we've found that with an increase in family programs, we've seen an increase in diversity. What are our challenges at the Denver Art Museum? And I would say, you know, the most obvious challenge, and maybe this affects many of you, it wouldn't surprise me, but art museums are for adults. That's the biggest um, preconception that people have of our institution, and it's the hardest to break. Um, you know, but we knew that we wanted to create things that would give adults and kids, as that family unit, an opportunity to explore the institution independently. And one of the th images you're seeing here is actually a kid with a backpack. And that's one of our, I would say, top family programs, is that that's something that a family can check out take around the museum and use. And part of that was our really wanting to respect the family as a family unit. They didn't have to show up at a program for a beginning, a middle, and end, but rather they could come, they could check out this backpack, and they can use it in the galleries. Um, what does, what would success look like for us? And this, to me, actually is an important slide because one of the things I always tell myself and other people um, when we start new programs is what would success look like? What do you want success to look like? And for us, it's really about wanting the Denver Art Museum to be part of that mental Rolodex of fam that families use to decide how they're going to spend their leisure time, that we kind of appear as they're flipping through, oh, I could go to the movies, I could go bowling, oh, I could go to the Denver Art Museum. Are we there yet? Not quite sure if we've hit the tipping point, but that's another thing I think all of us who do this kind of work need to ask ourselves, you know, when do we reach that tipping point that we become a part of um, kind of that Rolodex for our families? We wanted families to have the freedom of choice, you know, so that they could find things, linger with things, or move on to other things they wanted to get to. That they were engaging with the collections, an obvious thing, but that's, you know, we're museums, we have collections, we have objects, that's what makes us unique. And I think we need to stay true to that as we develop our programs. And we wanted galleries to feel comfortable, right? Especially art galleries, they tend to be made for adults, but I don't even know if they're really made for adults. They're made for people who stand quietly with their hands behind their backs. So how could you all of a sudden create galleries that were comfortable and were inviting? And that was partly our backpacks, was a way to say, you know, you've got to sit down on the floor, you've got to unpackage that thing, you've got to make the gallery your living room. Um, one thing I should probably, you know, our family programs 
are all sorts of things, but I would say our main emphasis has been creating things that live in the galleries. Games that you pick up, um, art making corners, if we can get away with it. Um, why do we do that? Because basically then we are a family-friendly institution 365 days out of the year. Because there's always something there for a family to pick up. Um, so what's our sort of design philosophy and what are a couple of, of things I want to uh, highlight and leave with you? One is make something that you can maintain yourself. And by that, you know, here are iSpies. This is sort of an outdated version. We've moved on to bingo as a kind of a model. But, you know, it may cost us $1,000, $1,500 to create a set of iSpies, but it costs $50 to $100 to maintain year after year after year. Um, and that really has been one of our leading philosophies. Um, another thing is get rid of instructions. And that's what I meant when I said be intuitive. On the left, you're seeing a kind of in, uh, a banner that was supposed to announce a game for kids. And look at the kind of complexity of that. When really, we realized that, or did I say left and right? Oh yeah, the one on the right is really what we ended up with. It's intuitive, it says play a match game, and it's very obvious what you need to do. And that, it seems like a small kind of thing to remember, but it really frames how we've become successful. We want families to be able to get into a space, know exactly what they're supposed to do, and not kind of get blinded by the, you know, by a very long didactic panel. Make it intuitive for families. You know, we go out and we visit toy stores. Um, we notice that kids are playing with blocks. We see that, uh, we know that people know how to play bingo. And that actually became the model for our new version of iSpies. Families have played roadside bingo, or car bingo, you know, when we're going on trips across the country. Um, so that became the model for how all of a sudden we could get a family playing together in a gallery space. I, I put, I, this is sort of um, interesting and maybe counterintuitive that low tech has a benefit. And I say counterintuitive, I mean the last New York Times um, magazine this past weekend was all about kids and technology and I think all of us are embracing technology in our institutions. I think it's really important. But I also think it's important to remind ourselves that low tech is a really powerful way to go. Not only because of cost and maintenance costs, but if you think about it, and this is the way I like to think about it, you can have inanimate physical things. You can have blocks, you can have stuffed animals. And it's what that child brings to the experience. It's what that family brings to the experience that really can create the magic. Their hands, their fingers, their muscles, their bodies, their eyes, their skins, their brains, their emotions. And that's really a philosophy we've taken to heart. We just um, put up a new family center around Egypt, and we went out and we bought these plastic inflatable palm trees. They cost 12 well, they were 15, but we started going through so many of them, we found them for 12.95. And you wouldn't, you just can't imagine what kids are doing with these in a really delightful way. And so I, I often kind of, I'm, I'm a fan of high-tech solutions, but I'm also really a fan of low-tech solutions. And I think there's a lot of magic that kids can bring to a situation, and families can with that. Um, and let play lead you. We designed a family center and all of the educators working on it looked at how do kids play. There's challenge play, there's dress up play, there's art making play, there's small world play. And those kinds of play have really defined 
whether we're designing a live program or an installed program. Um, and so success for us is when we see those parents and those kids coming together and playing at the museum, although we're actually fine if they're not. And I think I put this up too because I think this respectful, you know, there's a seat there, there's a bench there, and not everybody wants to play together. So with that, um, we have a resource online. You can go to www.denverartmuseum.org under museum resources. This is a booklet about our family programs. And thank you. And I, that was right on time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good afternoon. There we go. I'm Carolyn Nenart, Director of Education at Wenham Museum, and I will get the mouse over to there. Is it that? Oh, look at that. Okay. So I got the small museum's point of view, and in a moment I'll share a slide so you'll know how small we are. So at the Wenham Museum, what we call programming is usually a one-time event. That could be a puppet show, it could be a dance performance, pretty much one of those one-time events. A series could be an uh, offering of art classes. We have a local art art hello, art college that we're collaborating with now, doing a series of weekend uh, art classes for children, typically ages eight to about 15 or so. So that would be one of our series, or an annual happening, like our LEGO event, which you'll learn more about later. Of course, it advances the mission. That's what the director's always looking for. A direct relationship between the exhibit and our collection. Added value to admission and membership. And this is us, the Little Wenham Museum on the North Shore of Boston. <coughs> we serve about 35,000 people a year, ages zero to 100. And we do have that wide range. Maybe not on any one given day, but we do have that wide range. We have about a $500,000 budget, seven and a half full-time staff equivalent, so two full-time and 10 part-time, and there's two part-time education people. And I recently had a child, so I went from 40 hours to 20. So we went from 60 hours in the education department a week down to 40. And it has been a bit of a challenge figuring it all out. But at my small museum, uh, we do all hands on deck. Not to take away from the Constitution, <laughs> but when we do need help for various programs, the director jumps in, the curator jumps in, and we all get it done. And also I thought you might enjoy what our price point, what our prices are, and our hours as well. Monday is the day, the doors are closed, and we can hopefully get things done. And also the space in between where the sign that says Wenham Museum and the Brown House, that was an addition that doubled our space back in 1997. We still call it the new museum. Um, and now in our galleries, we have a large, which we call large, Thompson Gallery, where currently the Gilded Age of Glamour, a visit to the dressmaker shop is. And you'll see on the platform on the right, in the slide on the upper right, there's a group of dolls where young kids can go in and play dress up with the dolls, as well as play with the clothes that are there, dress themselves up. And where the lamp is, older kids can get um, 
a kit from the front desk, kind of rent a kit. Just their mom or dad has to give something valuable to the front desk, so we'll get the box back in return. So there won't be things in the gallery that shouldn't be. And they can design their own dress, color it in, embellish it, there's glue, that kind of thing in that kit. So our galleries are hands-on, which we don't consider this part of having the dress-up dolls and that kind of thing part of our programming. That's part of the exhibition. Then on the lower left, you'll see the doll, part of our doll collection, which is one of the largest ones in the country. So, and that's what started the whole museum. And th this is kind of the, you have a what? A 17th century home is the Claflin Richards house as well. And the reason we have that is the dolls in the house kind of go together because the woman that started our collection, she grew up in that home when she was a young child. And we acquired the 3,000 dolls and the house. So <laughs> that's what started it all. Uh, that's a good question. It's in New England, so it's guesstimated around 1670 or so. So it is first period. And then on our lower level, we have two larger galleries. One, the upper slide show, is our Family Discovery Gallery, or FDG, at our museum. And that's where families can go down and interact. We change that out about three to four times a year. As you can see, the young man on the upper right, he's sharing his collection in the collection box. Children and families, parents, adults, are invited to share their particular collection, too. On the lower level is probably why many people call us the train museum, because we have nine working train layouts, as well as we do have train collections there, but most of the children of all ages love to come and push the buttons and watch the trains go round. <laughs> and then our mission, just to throw it out there so everybody would know, protect, preserve, interpret the artifacts of childhood, domestic life, and the history and culture of Boston's North Shore vision when a museum is family friendly hands-on celebration of the treasures of childhood and New England family life and again employing multi-age interactive exhibitions programs and events the museum interprets its collection to explore how New Englanders have lived worked dressed and played from the 17th century to today so most programs can fit within that which is really great <laughs> and the goals as I plan think about a program that we plan, we have a few things in mind that we have to think of. So is it interpreting the collections and the story of Wenham to make it appeal to a broader audience than just a visit to the museum might include? Um, is it cost effective um, that advances the uh, mission of the museum and does it provide added value and a sense of ownership? at the museum. Do the f people begin to feel connected because they've had a good experience? Um, we do a lot of school pro programming, so I know it's not family, but I wanted to throw that out there so you realized we did include that as well. Um, provide another way of connecting the audience to the content of the exhibition. And lastly, foster an environment that provides welcome support and education to all visitors, regardless of age, ability, ethnicity, or family structure. And this one, hopefully, you'll be able to understand as I talk through them. In the main rotating gallery, that was the one that we had, that I had the Gilded Age. We switched that out about three times a year. Then our West Gallery is fashions and textiles, and that changes three to four times a year. 
The doll galleries, there's three of them, and those, the dolls are rotated out and special displays are installed about three times a year. And then the train galleries, we have the two. They're permanent and maintained for quality and updated as needed. And of course, the 17th century home to exhibit New England domestic life for three centuries. And the total exhibit space, not including the house, because we can only offer a certain amount of programs in there, is 7,400 square feet. So it sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much. <laughs> and then Burnham Hall, where we are able to do most of our edu exhibits or our larger programming and educational exhibits, is 900 square feet, so 30 by 30. Again, it sounds really big, but it's probably half the size of this room, and there's no stage or anything like that. So it, space does have its issues. Um, how do I develop them? Well, first of all, we rely on the curator to establish the theme of the story of our exhibition. And then we luckily do have an education committee from our board of trustees that meets with us regularly and gives us feedback regarding what the community wants and what the needs are. Most of the time. <laughs> At times, it's a little bit too much information, so we let them discuss it and then we take what we feel we need. <laughs> and then the la this one, the personal knowledge of the staff, that one's really critical because a lot of the uh, people on staff are parents themselves or are beginning to have grandchildren and they're saying what their family wants, what do they want to do on the weekend or as an after school program. So we really rely on that. Programming in the surrounding area, what's out there? Hopefully we could partner with them the director gets so agitated when she sees a program we've done and then somebody else copies it. And I go, remember, that's flattery. They really liked what we did, so they copied it. Um, public surveying, anecdotal during visits, paper surveys, and of course the comment book. Price sensitivity because of space constrictions and the budget, budget, budget. Um, because for us, we can only our space for ticket price sensitivity, I can only look at programs that are probably going to cost the entertainer or the puppeteer or whatever it might be, $600. And with that, we can create a ticket price. Usually the top level would be like $14 for an adult. And then with that, we could at least break even and hopefully make a little bit of money as well. And lastly, what partnerships do we have and which ones would we like to continue to foster? All right. Now, again, this is not to steal the Constitution's Museum's <laughs> thunder, but for the past two Augusts, we've had an edu exhibit, as we like to call it, in our Burnham Hall. This is the 30 by 30 room. And we had over 40 ship models for 10 days on display. And the, the related programming, we had how to make a ship in a bottle and people could actually try it out, paper model making, a DVD of how a half hull is made, and not tying demonstration, and people could try it out as well. It was very well received. And then this year, because another organization that does radio control boats saw that we had this last year, they partnered with us, and we had an additional display out in our lobby of their radio control boats. And we wanted to have a day at the pond, but the pond, unfortunately, was full of weeds, and radio control people don't like to drive their boats in weeds. So hopefully next year the pond will cooperate, and we can add that to it. 
Superhero Saturday, last summer we had uh, a comic book exhibit. It was all on comic book art and the history of it. As you can tell, we have quite an eclectic blend of exhibits. So there was a local artist, Jay Piscobo. He came in, did a book signing, and drew cartoons. You could walk up to him and say, I want the Green Lantern, and he would just whip it right up, or Spider-Man or Wonder Woman, and all these kids you can see are quite enthusiastic in their costumes. We also had a Superman moon bounce, ice cream sundaes, the soda truck, Jay does their labels, and, of course, the exhibit. And unfortunately, these pictures don't show it, but we did have a large number of tweens high school, college, and high school and college students that came because the art was really intriguing. And then other partnership programs, which you can tell we do a lot of that. Uh, nine historical societies came together in October of 08, and we had a quilt display exhibit. And it was a welcome back for our quilts. Some of them had gone on display in Japan. So they came home, and we had this large event for them. Also on the left, a local dance studio. They like to put a spring show on, complimentary. We said we have the space. That would be wonderful. So that, again, a free with admission, people came and saw the museum. And then Jose Mateo Dance Troupe out of Boston, they came and were available at our Soul of the Shoe exhibit opening in the spring. And our best family event ever was the Lego Train Weekend. And this is, the, this is what you will probably all want to hear. The first year we did it over Martin Luther King weekend, but we only counted two days because there was a huge snowstorm on Sunday and about 200 people came. But the first year, it, the attendance was up 500% from the Martin Luther King weekend the year prior. So it brought us 1,345 people for that, basically for two days, which was phenomenal for us. The second year, it got moved to Valentine's weekend because the gentlemen that did it were like three days killed them, so we switched it to two, and it increased the Valentine's attendance tenfold from the year prior, and it was about 1,500 people. So this year, we can only hope that it will get bigger and better or at least maintain itself. And then, I'm almost done, yay. How do we know if it's a success? Obviously, the simple enough. Increase in admission and attendance, increase uh, membership and development. When it's done a second time, it grows or at least maintains itself. Increases partnerships and visibility. Like I said, during that Anchors Away, another organization saw what we had done and they wanted to become a part of it. Brings in other opportunities, that's it. And it was great, especially the Legos. That's a group that are volunteers and they came to the museum so they focused all their efforts onto that exhibit program and all we had to do was making sure the visitors were having a good time, making sure there was enough toilet paper in the restroom and the parking lot wasn't too overwhelmed and there was a friendly face at the front desk, which was, in our eyes, a much better use of our time to get out there and be with the public. And then, if it's not so great of a success, but it fills the museum's needs, or the mission especially, uh, they get incorporated into another event. For example, we had a singing group that wanted to do a program, and we just knew it wasn't going to fly by itself. We have a summer family festival. How would you like to come and be a part of that? And they were great, so they came and did that. And I'm getting the warning signs from over here, so I'll let you read those. And I think I just have one more. My final thought. 
just when you think you have it all figured out, it will change. Because that's what the director had said to me, this is great, we know exactly what we're doing now. I said, yeah, in two years it's going to be totally, well not totally different, but fairly different, just because people's wants and needs change and there's a new computer on the block or whatever that's competing for our time. So, hope you enjoyed, hope I gave you some helpful insight, and thank you. And I'm not sure. All right, so a quick play on from good to great, from bad to great. I would like to um, narrow down in, my name is Rebecca Crawford, I'm the Outreach Learning Coordinator at the USS Constitution Museum, and I'd like to narrow in on one specific program development. So we've been thinking about families for quite some time, um, but I want to take you through um, one particular program that we've developed here at the museum that we're um, now considering a success, but it wasn't so much before. So who are we? We um, welcome 300,000 annual visitors, and obviously USS Constitution having being right in our front yard, it means that we are a popular tourist destination. Um, and so 40% or sorry, 4,000 families in an average peak month will make their way on over to the museum. And that's in July or June, um, that, that kind of high season for us. We have two different types of exhibits. Our downstairs exhibits are a little bit more traditional. Text panels, artifacts, um, a nice walk through the history of Constitution's history. Upstairs is a family-friendly exhibit, super hands-on. Um, you can swing in a hammock, you can furl um, a sail, you can scrub the deck. But downstairs, families are spending, on average, seven minutes. Not enough time. So with this new family learning project that we had really thought about exhibits quite a bit, but we hadn't turned our eyes to creating programming that was family-friendly. And so I thought, well, how, how are we going to make this happen? How do we increase our visitation downstairs? Well, the old standby of a scavenger hunt. <laughs> Seems like a good idea. So I created a scavenger hunt. And the first one was really very simple. Total failure. <laughs> this is a hunt and peck exhibit. It asks you to go find a label, fill out the information based on the label. There are hundreds of labels. Kids didn't want to do this. Nobody was picking it up. Nobody finished it. Nobody handed it in. Complete failure. So what do we do? Well, I revamped it. I thought, I know what I'm doing. I'll just, I'll create challenges. It'll be really fun. It'll be really exciting. And I created this 18-page behemoth <laughs> that goes on and on and on and on. And every family that picked it up looked at me like I had 12 hands, heads at the end of it and said, we couldn't finish here. So again, a failure. Too long, too complicated. Families aren't enjoying it. They're not spending really any more time downstairs because they're just getting frustrated and they want to get to the good stuff that's upstairs. So what did I do? I abandoned the project for a year. And then I came back. And I came back with fresh eyes and I said, well, what's the opportunity here? Um, we had both needs and we had dreams. Our needs were that this be completely self-facilitated. Um, we don't have enough staff to create a scavenger hunt that's really cool where somebody's positioned and you go and you find them and they're able to give you a clue. We don't have that kind of staffing ability. So it had to be self-facilitated. Um, we wanted it to be able to be rolled into our library pass, which you see on the right-hand side. We are a museum that is admission by donation. So 
when you have a library pass, you get free admission, but we already are free. So what can we give you? That's a little bit of a bonus. And um, this gallery um, guide or scavenger hunt became that. We wanted to increase the number of donations that we were getting from people and either charge for the use of this particular scavenger hunt or um, have families have such a great time that they want to give more than they otherwise would have or give on the way in and on the way out because they had such a good time. Um, the opportunity was that we could reach out to our local audience, our local family audience. We were in Charlestown. It's a great little neighborhood, but families aren't necessarily coming from Charlestown. So can we reach out to them with something new and interesting? They've seen it. They've been there. What can we do that's new and fresh? And so this, um, my idea for this gallery quest is that it will, um, either new ones will be added to it or it will be changed out and we'll do something different. Um, the other needs that we had were that it be historically accurate. Why should somebody come to a museum if not to have an authentic experience? And I could very easily have made up a storyline that was um, cool and fun, but had nothing to do really based in real story and real history. And then we also needed it to utilize spaces that weren't in the main thoroughways. We're expecting quite a crowd. You should all come to Boston for the bicentennial of the War of 1812. I feel like perhaps we care about it more than anybody else does. Um, but come to Boston, and we're expecting there to be hordes of people. So I wanted to create something that was kind of in the tucked away spaces. So you'll see on the left this kind of abandoned hallway. It's near our model shop. It's an emergency exit down there. How could I capitalize on this space um, in a program that otherwise I would never be able to utilize? And I wanted it to speak to a variety of, of um, ages and really spark conversation and lengthen that visit. So my goal was for people to spend half an hour downstairs. So where did I start? I scrapped everything, and I went outside of museums. I thought, scavenger hunts are really popular. So I looked at a couple of local commercial venture um, scavenger hunts, Watson Adventure Tours and Urban Interactive. Um, Watson Adventure is in a number of different cities, mostly on the East Coast, I believe. Urban Interactive um, has a pretty far reach as well. And they run these huge popular scavenger hunts that are for, open to the public, where you run around the city and teams, and you do these really cool um, challenges, and they're just, they're a blast. They're a lot of fun. Um, and then I also went to Tomb, which is an interactive experience um, created by a company called Five Wits. It's a full immersion, half-hour experience. You come in as a group, you have a team leader, who takes you through and you have to complete challenges that are really physical and intellectual. And then good old Google. Google, the world is out there. Anything you type in, you will find something. And lo and behold, there are people who have published their scavenger hunts for birthday parties and bachelorette parties and all sorts of really fun things that have nothing to do with museums, but who had really good ideas. So what did I learn? I learned that people want interactive experiences. I learned that they want things to be thematic, which neither of my two previous scavenger hunts were at all, other than to say the theme was USS Constitution. And they wanted something that was um, valuable. They wanted an experience that, that felt satisfying, which clearly my scavenger hunts had not been. I also turned inside the museum field and I looked at some success stories. The museum has been thinking about families for a while and created um, a resource for a museum professionals called familylearningforum.org, and you're all, please do, welcome to check it out. And we've been um, thinking about programming a little bit more, and we thought other people must be doing this. 
And so we were searching out into the big wide world of museums to see what successful family programs are out there, and we want to feature them on Family Learning Forum. And we wanted, so when you go on, on to this site, you'll find a little summary of the program, and you'll also find the, the global universal takeaways. And I wanted to test this. Can you take those takeaways? Can you be inspired by these other things and create a program that works at your own institution? Or do you just kind of read it and think, well, that's nice, they can do that, but none of that applies to me? The answer is yes, you can be inspired by these. There are takeaways that work at no matter what type of institution you're at. So um, I featured a couple here that inspired me, including um, the Harvard Museum of Natural History's Harry Potter scavenger hunt. And the takeaway that I got from that was pop culture sells. Um, the Arnold Arboretum in Boston um, does a letterboxing program. And the takeaway there was that community involvement makes people feel satisfied. Um, and then the Oregon Coast Quests um, in Hatfield Marine Center Science Center in Newport, Oregon um, are really, really great. And they're super thematic. And they have a really satisfying um, feel to it. When you find something, you're super excited that you alone have found it and that there are other people who have found it as well. And you're part of this um, clique of people who found something secret that is, exists only for those who know about it. So I'd like to walk you through the creation of this particular quest. I stopped calling it a scavenger hunt, because that, in my mind, had dirty connotations of these really awful things that I had created a year ago. And I said, a quest, that's what I'm on. So I started with historical research. I wanted this to be an authentic War of 1812, as I um, think towards the bicentennial and finding, creating something that lasts. I wanted, um, so I started in the archives. I went to my archivist, I went to our research coordinator, and I said, give me some stories that are cool. And lo and behold, they have stories that are cool. Um, and then I went back to my checklist. Does it have pop culture? Yes. My story is about mutiny, or at least the potential of mutiny. Um, does it have a really good theme? Absolutely. It tells this great story arc. Um, does it, can it involve some sort of choice in any way? And I thought, well... I suppose I could allow people to decide whether or not they wanted to join the mutiny or not, because some men on board ship were thinking mutiny, others were very much towing the party line, and were not thinking mutiny. So I created a story. I went back to the historical research every time it didn't meet my checklist, and I said, no, 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 i got to find something else. And then I found something new and then went on until I was satisfied. And I created this storyline. Um, Moses Smith writes, um, he's an ordinary seaman on board ship, during the War of 1812, he writes some memoirs, and in it he tells us of the story of Captain Hull leaving the USS Constitution during the War of 1812. He had been much beloved by the crew, and then Commander or Commodore William Bainbridge takes over. He had been unlucky in the past. He had lost several ships, um, and he was fond of the cat of nine tails or the whip. So people weren't too terribly excited. And that's the storyline that I focus on. People um, on board ship thought about mutiny it ended up, ended up not working out for them, but there was this thought process. So I created a little story. It's loosely um, fictionized, but it's all based in true, honest research um, and on things that I know to be true about life on board ship. Then I went through the galleries, and I kept my eyes open for hiding places. I kept my eyes open for those places that weren't going to obscure traffic. And um, as I went through the gallery, I found all these little spots that I could tuck something into. 
And then I created the games and the challenges. And I decided that if I wanted a half an hour experience, there shouldn't be more than four stops. This 18-page behemoth thing was gone. So four stops on the quest. Um, and I wholeheartedly uh, borrowed from Watson Adventure Tours, from Urban Interactives, from Google and ideas that were out there on the internet, and I adapted them to my particular circumstances and my story. But nothing um, is new under the sun in my world, and so I was very much thinking creatively about how I could redo what was already out there. I decided on the look and feel. So now when you pick up a mutinous expedition, the gallery quest, you get a cool book that has all sorts of fun stuff in it that you're going to need in order to complete it. I'll have this up here later so you guys can take a peek. I drafted my quest. So I created a draft. And then I prototyped it. And all of this cost me probably $15, not including my time. Materials cost was about $15. Um, and I kept it really simple. Paper, masking tape, um, really cheap materials, so that every time I tested it, I started with my um, coworkers who pointed out glaring discrepancies or things that like, I had assumed everybody would know, and they were like, nobody knows this, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> all right, fine. And then I went back and I redid it, and then I tested it with some volunteers and some interns who aren't as intimately familiar with the galleries as my coworkers are, so they were able to say, oh, I, I didn't know where that was, or that clue really didn't make any sense, or what's a label? Oh, how about the poster? Poster works? Okay, poster. We're going to call it a poster then instead of a label. Um, and I prototyped, 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 prototyped until I was ready to do it with the public. And then I prototyped some more. And it kept influencing the draft. It influenced the look and feel. It influenced the actual game. It influenced where I was putting everything. It all went back, and I would redo it, redo it, redo it, until people were giving me five um, out of a one through five scale. And I did the prototype really, really cheaply, um, pieces of paper, I asked families to fill out feedback forms that had smiley faces so that two unhappy faces meant they hated it and two really happy faces meant they loved it. And then I had my quest. So to give you a sense of the prototyping, again, that paper idea, really, really simple, um, all very cheap. And this is now what it kind of looks like. Um, that hallway that I showed you is that center picture. Now there are things on the wall, things that are hidden around a corner that nobody goes to. So what happens? Now, 100% of the people who have taken it have rated it either one smiley face or two smiley faces, fun or extremely fun. And that, in my book, is a huge success. Um, the level of difficulty, they've um, responded that it's just difficult enough. I don't want it to be super easy so that they feel like they've um, they did a baby thing, but I also don't want it to be so challenging that they come back to me and hand it back in unfinished because they just couldn't figure it out. My target age range is families with children that are about 12 years old, but I've included things that work for the four-year-old in the family. They can carry around the magnifying glass. They can um, hold on to the quest. There are roles for everybody involved. When one of my families responded to the questionnaire, I asked them, would you recommend this to another family? And they said, oh, definitely. It was super fun for all ages. It's great to be able to interact in and with a museum, and we learned a lot. Whew, success. <laughs> what more can I possibly ask for? So I encourage you all to, to think about that whole process 
And I think now we are going to be breaking out into smaller groups. Or actually, no, that's not true. First, we're going to have question and answer periods. So thank you all very much. We have a few minutes for questions. Does anybody have a question for any of the individual panelists or for the collective? I like the Lego idea, but Legos are expensive. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with that? Luckily for the Lego trains, that volunteer group, they brought everything. And all we had to do was provide the safety barriers. But we have done our Lego Palooza and it's asking friends, neighbors, people walking on the street, anybody you know, if they have Legos, could we borrow them? And the trickiest part was, if any of you have kids in that age, are very territorial. They're my Legos. Don't mix them up. So we had to be very particular. You know, Johnny's were here, Susie's were on this table, and they can't be switched. So fortunately, we didn't really have to purchase anything which made it even more cost effective. <laughs> and we actually, with that, we've, when we had the Lego Palooza, we realized we had to really do it in timed sessions so we could have 30 kids for an hour. And we ran, I think, three of those per day for over a couple of days of vacation week. So that's how it worked, yep. Actually, I would say 80% of our programs we define as family programs. What are our children's programs are our summer camps and classes. Um, so when we design something or when we plan for a program, we're trying to think of that intergenerational learning. And like I feel like a lot of us have talked about, families come with the 12-year-old and they come with the four-year-old. So how do we also create elements of that in everything? Um, one thing we've started to do recently is, for example, if you find a game or a table that has a game on it in one of the galleries, we try and create two levels of tables so that all of a sudden you're signaling, you know, parents could work here, kids could work here, or all the whole family could gather around a small table. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's still a challenge because I think we tend to think of, I mean, it's, kids, kids will gravitate to anything, right? You could design it to look like it's for an adult or you know, kids will go for it. But how do you get the adult to engage as well? We try and think of family. Yeah. Sorry, one, one, one more question? Um, I have a question for Heather also. How are you evaluating the program? It's a great question, and it's something I did not put in my PowerPoint. We also believe highly in prototyping. I mean, everything we do. We do not develop anything um, if we don't prototype it exactly like Rebecca said. So I can't underscore that enough, how important I think that is with masking tape and paper and glue and markers. Um, so we do a lot of that. And we do do a lot of formative testing as well, where we will do visitor panels. Um, recently, I started a preschool program for three to five-year-olds, or parents and three to five-year-olds. And you know, I gathered up moms groups, five or six moms groups, and did interviewing with them. Um, a lot of our energy is spent on evaluation. 
And then part of that problem, you know, is well, how evaluation can be a very scary word, and it can also cost a lot of money. So one of the things really that has been a part of our philosophy is when we write grants, how can we build capacity on staff? So how can we have you know, the Randy Corns, the Lynn Deerkings, whoever, try and come in and actually train us to be able to do the testing and the prototyping and the visitor panels? And so we've, we've put a lot of resources into that, but the result has been that you know, there are several of us on staff that actually have the skills to do the evaluation. But that's also been slow, you know, that doesn't happen overnight, that takes time. Any other questions? shift to a small group discussion and it's going to be really small group. Um, actually we're going to just ask, we're going to pass around a sheet and just ask if you could turn to your neighbor um, and share this sheet. And um, what's in it is uh, a list of potential characteristics, common elements that would go into a successful family program. Um, it, is, it is absolutely a draft. It just came out of a conversation that um, the USS um, our advisors, and so you'll see a list of characteristics, and what we'd like the pairs to do is to look at this list and decide 
sorry. Um, look at this list um, and decide what you'd want to keep, what you think is an essential characteristic common to successful family programs, what you think should drop, it's not critical, um, what you'd want to keep but you might want to change some wording, and then after you look at the list, decide are there things that are missing from this list that you would want to add. Um, we're going to have about eight minutes for conversation between their pairs, and then we'll do it from reporting back. Um, and then based on the conversation and the refinements that come out of this session, we're actually going to be posting it on our website and hope that it might um, help in development of successful family programs. So um, our panelists are actually going to be floating. So if you have questions um, about the list or the, um, the exercise, please feel free to ask.
This is you. No, that's not on at all. You guys have two minutes. You got two minutes. You're going to put your thoughts. going to go through each element and try to get a sense of by show of hands how many thought by with each element we should this is an important element important characteristic common to successful family programs we want to keep it or we want to drop it then we're going to come back around and if you have ideas about well I kind of like the concept but I want to refine this we'll, we'll make note of that and then lastly are there important elements that you didn't see listed here that you feel that are critical to de in developing a successful family programming program? So that's the challenge. We want to get the tally. So starting with multi-sided, multi how many people by show of hands thinks that this is an important element and it should be kept on a list like this? And Rebecca's going to help me count. 
21 total? All right. And the final score? 21 want to keep it. Who thinks this is a good idea but it's not critical in an list like this? It's not elemental. You'd want to drop it. Feel free. Fair enough. And you see, you might have seen from this list in the bottom that the starting point from this list was the, the successful criteria of a family-friendly exhibit. So that is a carryover, and maybe it's not as critical in, in, in a program. And I should say the programs, we were thinking it could be facilitated or unfacilitated. Um, sorry. Right, there's always practical considerations. When we're doing exhibits at our museum, we do try to create different pockets where it's multi-sided, and the idea there is that visitors can look at each other and they may be more encouraged to have a conversation. And we like to quote Minda Boren, who um, says that conversation is the currency of family learning, generally. So that's sort of where that came from. Um, what about collaborative? This is a family unit. Should the, the program be collaborative? And yes, keep it. How about we say drop? That's easier to count. <laughs> All right, drop. Doesn't need to be collaborative. Zero. All right, that's good. Good call. We'll keep that. <laughs> OK, multimodal. Appealing to different learning styles. This is keep. Drop. All right, just one, one or two brief. But otherwise, the majority rules there. Minds on. It's based on, um, you know, good content. Families learning a skill, information, or even just about themselves could actually be a little off what the ooh, target was <laughs> on the spotlight there. <laughs> um, so keep, sorry, and then drop. So just a three, did I miss a couple drops? Four or five drops. But tweak, okay, fine. Yeah, refine. All right, inquiry-based. Is that going to? Encourage a conversation. All right, who would want to drop that? We don't care about conversation. Okay, that's a good, because actually that's a good point, because we, we can go back and... So the concept is good, but doesn't need to be its own or phrased that way. All right, that's a good point. Do other people feel that way? Yeah. Good. All right. Thank you. Great. So that's refined. Concept good, but doesn't need to be its own. All right. Multi outcome. Uh, how about keep? Keep. Drop. All right. Okay. 
Yep. Right. Right. With history, it happened one way. <laughs> so. Um, Yep, one message. Okay, authentic. This is, comes back to the Euro museum's mission, your story. <coughs> Who says, forget about the fact, doesn't need to be authentic. Fiction. No, okay. Um, relatable, so the, the participant can make a connection in their own lives. Both multi-generations can do so. Anybody not relatable, no connections? All right. What do you think about fun? For hit museums, it has to be all serious. No, we can have fun too. Excellent. So that's better. Yep. Right. Absolutely. You want him to come, want to come? Yep. Right. I, that's a very good point. We, we had that when we were talking about our exhibit, which is about battle. We said we want families to learn and laugh together. And then it kind of doesn't really work because battle is not so funny. Um, but engaging covers that. Yeah. The skills. Learning the skill set. So it, it is authentic in a way, but yep. it's not about our story. And it's very fun and it's very collaborative and engaging. Um, but we don't do it all year long. Mm -hmm. so it's one family program. Maybe the word instead of fun is satisfying. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Right, right. Right. They're not having fun. Probably their parents aren't having fun either. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Right. By their kids. So either um, do we have a few minutes to add things that we're missing here? No, we do not. Okay. Okay. Yeah, if, if any, or if anyone wants to write on their sheet uh, an element that was missing there that you think is critical that would, would help, um, we, we'll take those at the end. Thank you. Um, now we're just going to shift just for last few minutes, um, bring everyone's attention to um, a, a website that uh, the USS Constitution Museum has developed um, with funding from IMLS. And the website, and I have some cards if anybody wants them with the web address, it's uh, familylearningforum.org. And what we've tried to do is have it be a rich resource for everything to do with that we could find and we're continuing to build on families in museums. So it has a lot of information about developing program, uh, rather exhibits for families, talks about evaluation, there's theory about family learning. Um, and there is, um, Rebecca alluded to, a tab on programming, and there you can, um, uh, it will lead you to um, about 50 programs that have develop been developed um, by museums across the country and different types of museums. And it's a summary takeaways from programs that they deem successful. And um, there's great takeaways so that, as Rebecca did, you can refine your own. You could develop a program based on it. It is basically a steal, that, a, steal a good idea. Um, and they're also arranged by category so you can look at it. Um, we've looked at all of what we have. There's about 50 now. It's going to grow to 100 and looked at what are some um, common takeaways when you look at all of the list. Um, we had advisors come to the USS Constitution Museum and give us their top 10 family programming tips. So there's great things there. We also have video presentations that relate to family programming. Um, Beverly Sorrell from ILI talked about how do families experience your institution, and it's a visualization exercise. So you can walk through your own museum and, and in the, imagine you're a family. We've got uh, um, Dan Fries from Conner Prairie and Susie Wilkening um, from Reach Advisors and, and also information about uh, training. There is a, um, a, a, a bibliography, a reading list that, about family programming that also includes some dissertations. Um, and then the parting shot, um, if you at your institution uh, would like to recommend your own program um, to be put up, put up as a successful family program, our staff would get in touch with you and basically ghostwrite it, you know, so you wouldn't have to, to, to take the time to write it up exclusively yourself, um, but we would work with you to get, get write it up. Um, and, uh, or if you want to recommend from an, uh, a program that you've attended at another museum, um, we'd love to hear about that, and um, we can we continue to build the site. So I've got cards for everybody that just as a reminder about this site, and uh, just want to thank everybody for um, being at the session, and thank our uh, panelists.
Well, thank you.